welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Mary. Yes. You were really rocking out there. I was, was I? <laughs> I thought you were going to like get dizzy and throw up or something. No, I love uh, I love our intro song. I know not everybody does, but you know what? We do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Kubo's awesome. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat. Shocking dramas and treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam and Mary Gardner. Coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hey. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about damn time I did this last part two final episode. Second and final episode of Kimberly Sains. Signs? Signs. 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 Ever weather signs. I saw the signs. Oh, my goodness. And it opened up. It's eyes. the signs of the times. Mm-hmm. So if you guys haven't turned this off yet, you're still here. Yay. Yay. Okay, let's just, you know what, let's just get into this. This, this was a lot of stuff in this second part here. slime ball. You had to really cut it down. I did. And, you know, I was going to go into more detail about the, um, what happened in court. But I realized that it's not, there's just so much fuckery that it's... <laughs> But I think Drama. I can, yeah, I think I can sum, sum it up because I think, you know, in this case, it's just, uh, you'll, you know what, guys, just trust me on this and you'll, well, I don't know if you'll ever understand unless you, it, but uh, let, let's just trust me on this if you can. Okay. Okay. We will. So we laugh, laugh. I am really starting off well. Lufkin. Okay. We last left off. In Lufkin. Yeah. With DeVita having problems not being up to standard. They had a higher death rate than any other sites. January 1st to December 31st, 2007, 27 patients had died. However, from April 2nd to April 28th, 2008, 34 patients were sent to hospital and there were at least five deaths. So think about it. In one entire year, there were 27 deaths. But in 27 days, there were five deaths. Okay, yeah, something's up there for sure. Yeah. So they needed to try and identify the problem. And I I don't know if you remember, I talked about Amy Clinton, who was brought in as a new nurse supervisor, or at least to supervise the goings-on, to find out what was going on. And there were a few other monitors that were brought in with her from, you know, a physician level to, um, like, each, you know, LVN, a PCT, just to look at it from their perspective as well. So I'm just going to go through the things that they, the most important parts that they went through and what the results were. So the water purifier, and we know that that's one of the most, if not the most important thing there, because, Ooh, yeah, well, I think that would be moderately it's, important. It's, oh, yeah, for sure. Obvious. Um, so they purified their own water and it's a really complicated process. And the water treatment was a huge part of the dialysis process, like I just said. So they went through that with a fine tooth comb and they didn't identify any problems there. 
Secondly, there's the biochemical technicians, and they maintained all the water systems. They all checked out. Um, they were well hired, good work history, paperwork in order, everything. So it was like an excellent condition. You know, all that, their status was excellent. Third, they went through the reuse technology. So some dialysis centers use what's called reuse dialysis. So you have your dialysis machine and you have your filter. So most times the filter is disposed of after dialysis, but in some situations they will sterilize that filter and reuse it again. Now this is an option that's given to the client that's getting the dialysis and they have to sign off and agree to this. Um, is so it, would it be like their own personal filter kind of? A oh thing? yeah, no, it's their own filter. Basically, oh, okay, no, gotcha, they wouldn't gotcha. be like, oh, I'll have a uh, Billy's filter. <laughs> Oops, we missed a microbe. No. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. So they cleansed it, sterilized it. It was very strict how they did that. They passed with flying colors on that. They had there was problems that were found in two thousand and seven, and they had completely fixed them. So scarily enough, um, you know, there, there had been some concerns and, uh, so yeah. And then number four, they checked all dialysis, you know, from head to toe, the machines, everything. And there were no problems there. Then they went to the policy and procedures just to see if they were up to date. They didn't miss anything, nothing new, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they went through again, everything with a fine tooth comb and it all checked out. And lastly, they checked the patients themselves. Um, they make sure that they were having proper vital signs done. Their progress was being um, charted and um, monitored, status during treatment, orders, um, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. And that also was being done well. And the charting for that held up. So, so none of the patients who died at DeVita or suffered serious health complications while undergoing treatment began with problems. The problems began after they started their treatment and they happened suddenly. So that was the case. It wasn't like from the get-go they weren't doing so well. It's like they came in, they were stable. You know, what was to be expected with the dialysis patients? You're, you're going to have extra fluid, edema, your blood pressure may be high or low depending. You know what I mean? Like you would come in with that and not just... And you should be, you should improve it as your blood is right. getting cleansed, right? Generally, and the, dialysis makes you feel a heck of a lot better. Yeah, you know, it, it gets all the, you know, the... Gets the gunk out. Gets the Cheeto dust out of your, <laughs> your bloodstream. Yikes. Well, that's all I could picture is these orange dust particles being taken out. Um but another can uh, another concern came up, and that was in regards to heparin. So you can imagine heparin is always on standby because if something's going through machines at any point, you can get a clot. Yeah, for and sure. yeah, so there was a recall on heparin that had happened recently, and they in relation to this time frame. Yes. Oh, okay. They had checked out all their heparin, and it was not the heparin that had been recalled. So they had kept it, um, you know, so, but in any way, they just said, screw it. We're just going to get rid of all the heparin we have regardless. And they bought, you know, a fresh supply of uh, heparin. So they, they even covered off on that and um, nothing came up again. Everything as a whole checked out. So after Clinton's arrival, problems stopped for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So she arrived on April 
the second after the first two deaths. Mm-hmm. They were just like, okay, now we, we got to check into this, obviously. Um, but because of the, you know, the other things that were going on as well. And then there, nothing happened. Everything seemed to be going well until April the 16th. Dun, dun, dun. Well, yeah. So you think, oh. Uh, nothing happened. I, I until. did something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so this huge, I mean, deaths, murders take place. You've just started working there pretty much. And now they've launched a full investigation. You know, um, at least she had a couple of brain cells in her head to go. Maybe I should back off on this a little bit. Who knows? Maybe she was even like, oh, okay, let's not do that again. But, you know, she was her compelled, overwhelmed to to get back into doing it. Like her her psychopathy couldn't stop her from, from carrying on. So the deaths and near deaths dramatically and suddenly rose from the 16th to the 28th. Her next victim was Mr. Garland Kelly Jr., He was really well-respected. Everybody loved this guy. He never let anything get him down. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background because, you know, he was was an amazing man. He grew up in segregated Lufkin, in segregated neighborhoods, schools, hospitals, right? All all of the, all that horrible shit that went with uh, uh, segregated uh, times. The the high school he was going to um, didn't, and this blows my mind unsegregate until 1970. I was born in 1970. Yeah. I was born in 68. (laughs) It's just insane for me to think, I mean, how could I possibly ever understand this in any way? This guy was so amazing. He was just like, you'd think that he would have had justified deep-seated anger, but no, he was an incredible human being. Um, His wife, quoted as saying this, he often said that it wasn't up to him to judge others and that he had no control over how other people felt, that it did him no good to worry about it. And he was taught by his parents and family to value hard work, honesty, education, and the good Lord. So, you know, he's just like, it's not on me, it's on you. Yeah. And it's wonderful outlook. I he could have been, you know, he could have been better, but he didn't. And he'd have every reason to be, right? He's like, yeah. People like this in, in, in like him in the world are just so rare. And I, I want to be around people like that just to absorb their, their, you know, natural beauty and, and, uh, and everything. So, so in high school, he was a good student and an excellent football player. He got a scholarship to play football and graduated in 1966. He met the love of his life, LaFrancis, and they got married after she graduated from college. He worked as an insurance agent, and he refereed high school football games. He just never got away from the love of the sport. Mm-hmm. Cool. So he, he and LaFrancis had three daughters, and he was incredibly proud of them. He taught them the same values as he was brought up with. When he was 53 years old, he was diagnosed with renal failure. He was young. I mean, that's how old you are. Hey, no giving away my age. I just say, <laughs> like, you care. Um, yeah, that is. That's... Did he, was he diabetic or something? He had a kidney transplant, but it gave out, gave out after three years. Um, and that's when he started dialysis. But you know what it says here? Along, I wrote here, along with the dialysis, he had type 2 diabetes, COPD, and hypertension. So I don't know if that's something he had or, or developed after the fact. He probably had that before. So that answers the question of why he went to kidney failure. Hmm, okay. um, and at one point, 
um, shortly after he started dialysis, he got gangrene in one leg and had to have it amputated. Oh, boo. And he would never let it get him down. People would see him out doing yard work and mowing the lawn with, you know, just the one leg and the um, prosthesis. prosthesis. They were just like, this guy's incredible. Like, nothing gets him down. He doesn't look for any reason to feel sorry for himself. Uh, So, yeah. So, here's a quote from a friend. Uh, Even after he lost his leg, there was never a time where he felt sorry for himself. There was never a time when he didn't attempt to lift people up around him. It just wasn't in Garland's nature to focus on his problems. So, as you can imagine, he was so well-liked at Tavita. Yeah. I mean... Sounds it, like a cool dude. Yeah. Um, and then his wife just said, "Just I just want to talk about him because, you know... Uh, yeah, just a lovely-sounding man. Yeah. And his wife said he, he never met a stranger. You never knew what he had gone through and uh, the way he carried himself. So, uh, yeah, he was often described as a sweet man and... Um, so, every again, I talked about people having routine with their dialysis three times a week, four hours at a time. You know, you, you have to find a way to pass the time. So he would come in with um, with his breakfast, like a boiled egg and some fruit or whatever, and he'd sit himself down and he'd watch sports. Um, and he, there had never really been any problems when he had gotten dialysis before. So he was stable when it uh, was hooked up at 05.36 in the morning, and he remained that way until 7.30. As per his PCT, who was assigned to him. So that's the patient care tech. Okay. And her name was Sharon Dearman. Um, so the staff started breaks at 730. And like anything else, it's like breaks are at these times, cover off each other and carry on. So just like I said, Dearman stated that half the staff were off the floor, including shift supervisor Sharon Smith. When the monitor on Mr. Kelly's dialysis machine went off. Dearman immediately went to see Mr. Kelly and found him unresponsive. The med nurse for the day was Kimberly Sines, Mm -hmm. and she was standing by his bedside trying to reset his machine. And she, but when he was unresponsive, she was just standing there doing nothing. So she was trying to reset the machine, but then he was unresponsive and she was doing nothing to help him. So uh, Dearman called for help, um, clamped his lines immediately, started CPR, uh, called an ambulance, and um, Mr. Kelly never regained consciousness. Um, He remained in a coma for four months and died later on August 15th, 2008. Can I just say that, like, I really hate her? Yeah. I mean, um, that's why I want to tell the background the best if I can of her victims, because these are just numbers. These are real people. And we, you know, I've said this over and over that these serial killers are, are the ones that faces that everybody else remembers, not, not the victims. Not so much. They're, they His often family. It could, and if he was what, 50, well, I don't know how old he was when he died, but you know, he wasn't 60, I don't think, but, uh, yeah. Say yeah. Someone that old. So on April 16th, the same day as Garland Kelly, Graciela Castaneda was the next victim. She was an elderly Hispanic woman who spoke a little English. Uh, she was married for 43 years and had three daughters. The importance why she didn't speak a lot of English is because most of the people there didn't speak Spanish. So especially if she wanted to call out for help. Yeah, convey something. Or if a nurse was doing something, like signs, she couldn't really ask her, like, what are you doing? 
Right. Right. She couldn't really. Um, I mean, there were staff there that did, but you needed to have the staff on that day in that moment that she was doing something. Right. Um, so remarkably, she had been getting dialysis for 10 years. Now, wow, most. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Most people, it's for three to four years. But uh, yeah, she had been getting it for 10 years. When she started her dialysis that day, she was stable. But at eight o'clock, she went into cardiac arrest. A uh, crash cart arrived and Epi was given at 8.08. She was rushed to, rushed to the hospital and she survived. So there's a test at LBH. Yeah, yeah she survived. Um, so there's a test that's done, you know, as a standard or, you know, part of the blood profile that's uh, sent off. And one of them is for LDH. Two days before her LDH was 219, which is well within normal range at the hospital. The blood was taken immediately within 20 minutes of her getting there, and it came back as 2,150. So, what? yeah, which is an <laughs> indicator, a high LDH is an indicator for hemolysis or cell damage. So, an elevated LDH is also a marker for bleach poisoning. So, at the time, they didn't know it was bleach, people hadn't been injected with bleach. Like, at least no one knew about patients being, um... Uh, well, it's, like, evil. Who thinks of doing that? Yeah, so, I mean, if it's other poisons, you can say, oh, well, I mean, when this comes back, we know that it can be related to this. But they didn't really understand, you know, why it would come back that high, except for the fact that she had cardiac arrest and it would come back high. But there was nothing specific to point them in direction of poisoning. So... The next patient was Miss Marie Bradley. On April 23rd, 2008, this Lufkin residence was the next victim of Kimberly Sains. She was um, she graduated from Lufkin High School in 1948. She worked for Jim Walter Holmes for 23 years. When you don't see people working that long in any place anymore, except for well, yeah, I mean it's not, it, yeah, not as much. I mean, people job hop a bit more to get. So, I mean, think. Different generations. Are it's different, just, I think right, it's so. just different. Everything's set up. But yeah, so she worked there for 23 years. Um, in 2000, she had um, a heart attack and uh, had kidney problems and started on dialysis at the Woodland Heights Hospital, one of the hospitals that Signs had worked for briefly, right. like a month. Um, so then she moved to DeVita on May 7th, 2007. And she was otherwise healthy and active. Um, she drove herself to and from treatments. Uh, uh, so she was having it originally at the hospital, and then her care was transferred to this, yeah. like an outpatient. Yeah. Right. Davida's just, that's what they do. They just strictly do dialysis, yeah. So on April 23rd, 2008, at 11 o'clock, she was stable, tolerating the treatment well. And then um, at 1500 or 3 o'clock p.m. near the end of her treatment, her blood pressure suddenly dropped from 145 on 66 to 97 on 50. And her O2 bottomed out as well. Her recent blood work, so she was, you know, taken to the hospital, get checked out. Um, she survived. Um, her recent blood work showed her LDH at 169. At the hospital, it was 1,372. Uh-huh. So, yes, so she was rushed to the hospital, and so, all she remembers is waking up two and a half days later and had no recollection of what happened to her. Um, 
she was without vital signs when she arrived to the hospital, but they were able to revive her quickly. So oh, she goodness. was very lucky. Uh, I mean, lucky that she didn't die, but not, not lucky that that um, happened to her. Um, on April 26, 2008, the next victim was Mrs. Deborah Oates. Again, another, an otherwise um, healthy and active woman who also drove herself to and from appointments. Her treatment was going well, like you would see. And Sains gave her medication through the dialysis access port in her arm, and she felt instantly unwell. Now, you have to understand, they almost never give meds through dialysis. It's usually oral meds, okay, unless it's something like heparin. So right. to be that injecting something into our, her dialysis line made absolute no, absolutely no sense. So she felt like really sick immediately, and her BP went from 147 on 73 to 83 on 56. Yikes. She described having nausea. Uh, she she vomited and had trouble breathing. Her body hurt all over and she was sweating profusely. The access line in her arm where her dialysis was hooked up started bleeding uncontrollably. So you imagine the terror of that. You are hooked up to a dialysis machine which is running your entire blood volume through and then the line starts to bleed and you can't stop it. <laughs> Like you're watching yourself. Yeah. You're sick as hell. And then you're watching yourself bleed out. Yeah. That's and pretty scary. she also had a funny taste in her mouth. Now, anybody who's had, um, not everybody gets this, but people that have been on long-term treatments and stuff can actually taste the different things that are injected to them. I know after I had my pick line and had a ton of, um, uh, you know, treatments and stuff like that, I could taste saline every time it went in. And patients used to say, Oh, I can taste that. And I'd be like, yeah. really? Oh. And then in my head, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was being a dick about it. But I just, I don't know. I found it hard to believe that injecting something could cause me to taste. Right? But I could tell it. I could taste it. She immediately asked signs. What did you give me? So she knew right away something happened. So Sharon Smith, the nursing supervisor, overheard this question from Mrs. Oates. And then she saw Kimberly Sainz. It's just standing there. She didn't answer the question, turned around and booked it out of the room. And then Mrs. Uh, Oates got even more sick. So I don't know if you remember, there was um, a gentleman by the name of Roland Guillory, who was a PCT. He was um, taking care of another patient in April when that patient died. And he felt like it was Mrs. Martha Strange. And he just felt so guilty about... Um, what happened to her and, and just traumatized by it. And so he was on duty that day when this happened. And so he helped Mrs. Oates, like went to her immediately, helped her and called the EMS. Miraculously, she was able to survive. Let me guess, did they do blood work at the hospital? Uh, I'm sure they did. In fact, I know they would have, but I, they didn't have any of the LDH. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't find any of the results for okay. that. So the next patient is Cora Bryant, and she was 91 at the time, born in uh, born on May 10th, 1943, near Lovekin. She was seen as a loving mother with four daughters and a son, had a great sense of humor, and was admired by all. There's a quote from her daughter. Our mama passed on a will to never give up. She refused to give up, and she has given me the strength to carry on. On April 26, 2008, um, she was feeling well. Candace Lackey was the LVN's assigned to her that day. 
And early on, she had a couple of clotting issues in the treatment, but they took care of it. They resolved it. And other than that, she was doing really well. Um, she went on her lackey, went on her normal break time. And when she returned, she saw Kimberly signs fiddling with the dialysis machines. And she shouldn't have been doing that. First of all, I'll explain more about how the, how the bays are set up, but basically you've got two bays with two nurses or two staff per bay and each would share four patients. Okay. I'll get into that more later, but she was assigned to the other bay. So she had no reason to be around these patients. She wasn't covering the break and yeah, she shouldn't have been there. So after signs left, Lackey checked the machine and saw that it had been, that it had been reset. And she was like, why has this machine been reset? Regardless, she's like, okay. And she started up the treatment again. Caught in the act or attempted. Well, we'll see here. So, okay. This is how you have to picture it. She comes back from break. She sees signs fiddling around with a machine that she has no business being near. The machine is stopped. Lackey resets the machine, starts it up, and almost immediately she gets really sick. And she gets a strange taste in her mouth. This is Bryant. And she said, what are you giving me? And then went into cardiac arrest. So clearly, signs put something in her line, got busted doing it. And um, there, you know, she, she got very, very sick. Um, and because this has been happening so often, the staff had become really good at doing CPR and, and bring, running the crash cart over, going through that whole protocol. So... Um, so everybody jumped in to try to save her life, except for Kimberly Sains, who just stood there and watched. So Martha Mann, who was a PCT that was working that day, was quoted as saying this. Kim was just standing there watching. She never attempted to help give CPR to save the patient. The um, one thing here is, I mean, there's a there. All these patients are, are victims and, you know, direct victims from this psycho. But Candace Lackey suffered guilt for many years. You know, she's, she's also in a way a victim of, of science because she said, I started the machine. If I hadn't but, started yeah, the machine. How could she have known that? But I mean, good people sometimes the I, I thought that they were along, along a, a line of something that caused injury to somebody will often feel this way. So, yeah. and of course, you know, so like we said, she had absolutely no reason to do so. And the guilt was even more pronounced the fact that Mrs. Bryant passed away at the hospital. That uh, just standing around doing nothing, does that remind you of anybody? Reminds me of all of everybody. <laughs> I mean, that we've covered. Beverly Allen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... For one, yes. So then there's um, Mrs. Opal Few. Um, Opal Few? Opal. Opal. Like the little Opal and Few. It's kind of a cool name. Opal Few. Yeah. I like it. Um, she, oh, her first name was Opal. And her last name's Few. Oh, sorry. I thought it was a hyphenated name. Okay. No, no. Yes, Opal. That's like definitely a certain generation. Of I love have that it. Name. <laughs> I love it too. Opal. Yeah. So she My was. Great a, Aunt Opal. 
She was a Lufkin native, born on October 13th, 1916, graduated from high school, married, and ran a boarding house. 1916? Yeah. How old was she? 91. Wow. Yeah. Um... She ran a boarding house and was known as a loving mother, good person, and uh, who was deeply religious. And she instilled excellent values into her children. She was well-liked, and she had been healthy her whole life. She had become deathly ill at 87, and this illness caused her uh, her kidneys to go into failure. Um, And so she'd been started on dialysis at 87. She was very independent and self-sufficient. Her health was quite good, all things considered, up until she was 91. She was well-liked at DeVita, described as a sweet little lady, happy and cheerful. That's kind of what you expect from, you know, a lady named Opal. Yeah. I think names do predetermine you. Um, You know, the kind of person you're going to be, in a way. And I'm not going to mention any names, because if it's the name of any of you guys out there, you're going to be like... How dare you? (laughs) But I think we all have run into a certain named person. Well, I guess there's Karen, but none of them are named Karen. Except (laughs) for me. Every time I want to speak to the manager, I just like zip it up. I shut my mouth. Just say you're K. Yeah. (laughs) It's like I I felt this 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 drive to speak to a manager and I'm like, for what? Karen. You don't have to be a Karen. Remember okay. when we were at that one store and the and the one girl was helping us at the self checkout and she was like, "Oh, Karen, I don't know anything about like she had." I was like, "Are you been living under a rock?" Like she didn't know anything or, about. Or Karen's. Maybe we have our noses into our phones too much. Um, Good okay, point. yeah, <laughs> no, I I'm the first one here. Um, I kind of envy somebody that really doesn't know this stuff that's going on because it's like they're actually like living their life. <laughs> at least that's how I I perceive it. Anyway, all right, let's get back to this. Um. On April 26, 2008, um, she had been offered an earlier appointment due to a cancellation, and she was really happy to take it because it's like, all right, good, I can get this done and over with, have the rest of my day. And um, Donya Donya Hartsfield was her LVN uh, assigned to her for the day. And she was stable when she was hooked up. Vitals were good. Treatment was going well. And then Donya went on break. And when she returned 30 minutes later, Mrs. Few had no vital signs. The staff worked but, hard. Yeah, but what? Where's the monitor alarms? I thought those. She's were... shutting them off. <sighs> Fucking bitch. Yeah. Sorry, um, you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> I think people need to hear your outrage. Um, so the staff worked hard to save her life, but unfortunately, they were not able to save her. So now that was five deaths in twenty-six days. Yeah, that's. Ridiculous. Signs was the med nurse that day. Uh-huh. And she did not chart any of her medications at all. And even and she was asked, did you chart your medications? And she said, yeah, but nothing was, was charted. <laughs> okay, so. CYA, baby, cover your ass. Yeah. So I'm just going to break down how the staff is set up at DaVita. Because it's really important to know this but also uh critical to explain some things here so you have your pct uh who are your patient care technicians and they're hired and trained to care for patients as they went underwent dialysis so they were trained specifically to davida for dialysis yeah okay the lvns are licensed vocational nurses two years of college and the 
PCTs and LVNs pretty much did the same jobs at DaVita. The big difference is that LVNs can give injections, whereas in, in handouts, you know, like dispense some meds, whereas PCTs can't. But usually, I think in Canada, they're limited to non-narcotic, like R- RPNs or whatever they're called. Yeah, I mean, things have changed a lot over the years, and, you know, I haven't worked in a little while, so I don't know exactly okay. the the standard there, but, um, yeah. Um, now, RNs have four years university, and they usually take on supervisory roles um, and are responsible for all staff in at DaVita. And there was always should be, if not always, three RNs per shift. One in each bay to be to run the base, to be in charge, and one med nurse. So we so on April 28th, something happened that really surprised Amy Clinton. So as you can imagine, she had been there for just a little under a month. She had not gotten to know all the staff yet and all the little idiosyncrasies and ins and outs of them. Mm-hmm. So was she a registered practice? Was she a registered practical nurse? Amy Clinton was a registered nurse. Okay. Yeah. But she was a supervisor, right? Well, no, she was running the, she was, remember, she was the one in charge of assessing what was going on. Right. Overall. Yeah. So she didn't know the ins and outs of the little, you know, the idiosyncrasies of of the staff and, and stuff like that. And she didn't know that Kimberly Sains strongly felt that direct patient care was below her, was completely beneath her. She believed herself to be in the same level as RNs. And all she wanted to do was be the med nurse. And she did not want to do anything else. Clinton was not aware of her um, her position on this or her personality. Um, So sometimes if the third nurse or there could only be two nurses that day because one called in sick, they would try to get another RN. But if they couldn't, they would delegate the meds being dispensed by an LVN. Um, so on the 28th, a PCT had called in sick. So they had the three RNs, but the only person that they could replace the PCT with was um, a nurse by the name of Dale Stockwell. And so he was going to be the med nurse, obviously, you know. You don't bring him on to cover a PCT. You bring him on to do his nursing duties. Sains was initially told that she would be the med nurse. But when he showed up, she had a fit. Um, She immediately started to sob. And Clinton was like, what the hell? And she she didn't know about her, you know, her attitude how you know her, her arrogance and just who she was and she explained to Sains what was going on and and she said she thought she spoke to her for like 10-15 minutes like calm to try to calm this woman down that's ridiculous you know toddler temper tantrum yeah like uh karen you're taking off uh meds today oh that really sucked oh, i was looking forward to doing that today well you know how it is explain explain Okay, where am I? Where am I assigned? You know, it's that simple. <laughs> right? Apparently it kinda, it, the only thing it sucks a bit is if that you didn't receive um, a report. By then, everybody had gotten the report. And now you have to catch up, you know, kind of thing. It's not that big of a deal. Anyway, so she thought everything was okay. And then later on, a staff member told Clinton that Sainz wasn't at her station. In fact, she had just gone out after that and started smoking and crying and having a temper tantrum in the loading bay. She didn't even go to see her patients. 
So it took another 10, 15 minutes to calm her down, to get her to even return to work. So. Yeah, that's just red flags all over. Oh, yeah. So she explained. uh, Sorry, I I explained earlier about how the bay, there's two bays, four patients in each, a charge nurse in each, one med nurse, and then um, the staff, uh, LVN, PCT, each had two patients in each bay. So eight in total. Uh, patients. Um, so at that that day, Signs was working with a PCT uh, by the name of Angie Rodriguez. Rodriguez would arrive to work at 4 a.m. to prep for the first patient at 5.30. She was um, an excellent, excellent PCT. I'm going to talk about prep now. So because this will lead to the understanding of what she was doing. Okay. So each patient had two bleach buckets. They were actually small pails, but okay. Bucket one would have a one to a hundred ratio of bleach. And that was measured in a little measuring cup, poured into the bucket. And that's what was used to clean surfaces before and after treatment. Surfaces that your skin would touch and your, you know, your that. But the they, the second bucket had a one to 10 ratio ratio of bleach, and that was used to wa- wipe away any any blood or anything like that. You might get a blood drop, that kind of thing. Right. So you need a stronger solution. Exactly. And both would be used for the entirety of a 10-hour shift, thrown out in a whole new um, buckets were made up for the second shift, um, the next shift. So the techs would place the buckets where on top of the dialysis machines. Nothing used in treatment ever touches the floor, ever. So that's just the setup. You've got the two buckets, bleach, different concentrations set up on top of the dialysis machines. The PCT would weigh in the patient before and after to see the amount of fluid that uh, was extracted. Um, Their access arm was scrubbed and clean, and then the port was accessed. Before treatment started, they would have their full vital signs done. They would do constant monitoring throughout. And one of the BPs that they would do would be orthostatic, which is sitting and then standing to see if there is a big um, gap between the two. Um, So Rodriguez's patient sat opposite to signs. So this is where I talked about the bay is like a horseshoe. So the two on one side, two on the other, and they would face each other. So Rodriguez's patients were... Mrs. Carol Rissinger and Mrs. Marva Rome. They both started their treatment at 050 or they started their treatment just before 6 a.m. Rodriguez took a break at 8 a.m. Now, let's get to who Sane's patients were. There was Lurleen Hamilton. She had been on dialysis for eight years and she had worked the majority of her career at um, uh, a nursing home. So she had medical training and she had been hooked up by signs. She was stable and the treatment was going really well. So this is a woman that's very observant. Has been doing this for eight years. Right. Knows the routine inside and out mm-hmm. and has a medical background. Right. Okay. So she was really surprised when she saw Sains acting really weird. She was right across the room from her and Sains was... Like, looking really suspicious. She was looking around to see if anybody was watching her, just acting all fidgety, stuff like that. So when she saw signs, 
placed the bleach buckets on the ground, she was like, wait a minute, that's not right. And then she saw her draw up bleach into a syringe. Okay. Even Mm -hmm. though these buckets were already made up Mm -hmm. and it wasn't the concentration from the buckets. She was drawing up separate amounts of bleach and the smell was strong. If the bleach smell can hit you across the room, you know, it's just bleach. Like it's not watered down. I hate the smell of bleach. I don't know about you. Um, so she drew it into four 10 CC syringes and then she stuck them in her bra and then she's looking around again. Oh, did anybody see me? Blah, blah, blah. That kind of thing. Then she saw Sains inject the bleach into the lines of Mrs. Roan and Mrs. Brissinger with those syringes. Uh, yeah, I think the alarm bells would be going off. And this is her quote. Lord, did I just see what I saw? Am I dreaming? End quote. I mean, that, that quote right there just sums up everything. Um, she was horrified and couldn't wrap her mind around it. She was frozen in fear. Signs was her nurse. Right. <laughs> Would she Am I be, next? Yeah, would she be next? So Angie Rodriguez returned from break at 8.15. She was only gone for 15 minutes. Mrs. Roan, her blood pressure was through the roof and she was incredibly agitated and she kept saying that she was uncomfortable. Mrs. Rissinger was also unwell with chest pain and stomach pain. And this is a quote from Mrs. Rissinger, because both these ladies survived, as you will, you know. Miraculous. Yeah. So it's well, probably because of that observant woman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it started off with a uh, pressure on my chest. So quote from Mrs. Rissinger. Uh, it started off with a pressure on my chest. It felt like somebody was pushing on me and then my stomach started to hurt, a severe hurt. Um, she drifted in and out of consciousness. And then said it turned into a nightmare and so many had died and I thought it was just my turn. End quote. So, Dr. Nazir... So they knew... So even the patients knew shit was going on. Well, they... I mean, they're there all the time and they knew a lot of people were dying. So, oh, then it's like Opal and... But, know. you know, but the, here's the thing. This is where medical serial killers or medical monsters get away with it because deaths are expected and they have drugs on hand. There's so many ways that a patient can pass right? and you go through periods of, you know, bad periods. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I've seen it. I've seen where you don't see one of a specific injury and then you'll get, you know, for six months and then you'll get three in one day. And what the heck is going on? But typically dialysis is not a place where people would. Not in the dialysis. Patients would die because dialysis, your, your kidneys no longer work. Right. Right. So patients that would have so many comorbid, um, you know, uh, disease going on. And so, yeah, death was not unexpected, but yet people don't die in, in the chair while getting dialysis. It's very rare. This Dr. Nazir, who I'm talking about, said in his 22 plus years, he had never seen it. Um, so, Speaking of him, he was at another dialysis center and he was called in to assess um, Mrs. Rissinger's chest pains. By the time he arrived, the staff had managed to stabilize both the patients. When her hu- when Mrs. Rissinger's husband arrived, he demanded to know what was wrong with his wife. And he was like, what did you do to her? Because, you know, he knew things were going on, too. Um, now, meanwhile, Mrs. Hamilton was who was a normally really quiet, easygoing woman was terrified 
and she didn't want signs to come near her. She called to the like uh, a PCT that she trusted. This was Yasmin Santana. And she said to her, I saw her inject bleach. And Yasmin's like, no way. Because no one. Yeah. No, no one, one thinks like, first of all, like you just don't. that evil? Like, what? Come on. I mean, you're going to follow through on it. But right off the bat, you're like, come on. Except for nurses that follow true crime be like, where is it? Where is she? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess her first reaction would be like, are you sure? Like, incredulous. Like, why would she do that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Although if people had died recently, you think she'd be like, um, hmm, maybe that would explain things. Well, I think it's just so shocking. And here's the patients that are, like, they look like they're going to die. It's the same symptoms as before. And now the patient says, I saw this happen. Holy crap. Anyway, so she she went um, immediately to Amy Clinton. Don't let that bitch near me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, She went immediately to Mrs. uh, uh, Sorry, Yasmin went immediately to Amy Clinton. And Clinton was like, Wait, no way this can be happening. But she went and followed through on it, obviously. Right. The thing is, it wasn't just Mrs. Hamilton who saw this happen. The person sharing the bay with her and sitting next to her was another woman by the name of Mrs. Hall. She saw it too. And then when she heard her speaking to Yasmin and then Amy, um, then to Amy Clinton, she's like, wait a minute holy crap, I thought I was hallucinating. I saw it too. So now there's two people that have witnessed this and they were, you know, they were facing those patients, but had a bit of a different perspective from what they saw. You know, they're not sitting directly next to each other, but they both saw her do it. Well, and I mean, the stories were almost identical. And the other important thing is they both saw her drop the syringes into a sharps container. So they could both say, we saw her do this, and they saw from the perspectives of their angles. So that's where there was, like, maybe a little bit of a discrepancy, but otherwise it was exactly the same. So Clinton spoke to Science, and she asked her a bunch of questions. She's like, "Um, did you put the bleach buckets on the floor? Yes. Did you give any meds? No. And, but she did. So then later she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I flushed a line with saline. And uh, uh, Clinton said, did you chart it? No, go chart it. And then she's like, why did you flush the line with saline? Oh, there was a clot. Now, there is always a saline bag piggybacked to the line. So she was injecting saline into a saline bag. That makes absolutely no sense. It's like, this is, yeah, I was giving saline in the saline bag when all you have to do is flick the line open, you know, um, and run it through and then, and then clamp it off. So, you know, she gave herself away. So basically everything was asked except for the buckets on the floor. She lied about, well, I mean, surprise, surprise. Um, Oh, I thought she said. I thought she said she did put the buckets on the floor. No, that's what I'm saying. Aside from admitting to putting the buckets on the floor, oh, okay, everything right. else she lied about. Um, yeah, like, then that's like, wouldn't that be like the one of the most standard things? Like yeah. floor, feet, germs, right? Like that's why they don't go there. Right? Yeah, exactly. So 
Clinton's like, you know what? Like, I'm just sending her home. This is this is like, saying go home. And she did. Um, so with her out of the building, Mrs. Hall and Mrs. Hamilton calm down. They're like, okay, she's not going to touch us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they, of course, they went to the chart. She didn't chart anything. So Clinton now told Dr. Nazir what happened. So he shows up because one of the patients are having chest pains. Holy crap, it's going to happen again. Oh, guess what? These two patients saw her injecting bleach into these two patients. And he was like, no. Of course, because, you know, again. Who it, would do that? Who would do that? Um, so he kind of screwed up. Uh-oh. Because they recovered quite well. I guess whatever they, maybe she, I don't know, maybe they just jumped in fast enough. Maybe the way she didn't wasn't as effective. I don't know, but they were, some reason these patients recovered quickly. But he said, you know what, I want you to go to the hospital to get checked out, get some blood work done, that type of thing. But he didn't tell them why. So they didn't go. I mean, these are patients. No, but come on. I can imagine. I've been at dialysis all friggin' day. I feel fine, even though the, I get it. I, I can totally but see But you it. almost died. But they don't know that. They don't know that. I can get it. So, but he screwed up. He should have just said, look, we think you've been poisoned. Go get checked out immediately. As, as scary that is. Well, shouldn't they just transport them themselves for free? Yeah, sakes? I mean, that's a lot of, a few things there should have happened. It's all about worry, worry, lawsuit money. Uh, I Yeah, it could be, you know, this this doctor seems like a decent guy, but still people follow the party line, right? So mm-hmm. what he did do right, him and Clinton did this right. They immediately removed the sharps containers and they took um, Mrs. Uh, Roan's bloodlines and they preserved them in a in a fridge. So they zipped them up, put them in the fridge, okay. I think freezer, and then took the the sharps containers. So this was April the twenty eighth. So the, right away they called the police department and said, "Look, we've we've got a serious situation on our hands here." So this sergeant by the name of Stephen Abbott um, was Lufkin Police Department. This is huge tall teddy bear of a guy who looked very unassuming but had like uh was military police had been working for a lot of years um as a as a cop and then a sergeant and you know people would look at him and say oh he just looks like a simple easygoing dude but really in his brain he was a meticulous investigator um and but they're in Lufkin, they were used to dealing with with petty crime. There may be the you I know, I was gonna some, say it's not a really big, big place, no. right? I mean, you wouldn't this would I be mean, an there unusual was like occurrence, drug sure. offenses and stealing, maybe some assaults, but not yeah, serial murder, yeah, alcohol related stuff, yeah, and that kind of crap, right? So he's like, Oh my god, well, I'm sure he wasn't like, Oh my god, he was <laughs> like, Okay, um. And he did an incredible job handling this investigation. So, again, I'm not going to go into great detail, but it's amazing what, 
you hear about, you know, small town police and, you know, they, they don't know how to handle things. And that may be the case in some situations. But there's some that just because you work in a small town doesn't mean you're not amazing at your job. Because mm. a lot of really shitty cops and stuff fall through the cracks in departments that have large volume of... of <laughs> exactly. In big cities. Yeah, in big cities. So, well, maybe his military background, too. Very, you mm-hmm. know, like process-oriented yeah. kind of thing. Very you know? regimented, yeah. So this is what he did. On April the 28th, think about the day so far, okay? It's just signs is having a temper tantrum because she can't give out med. Hmm, was that a trigger? Mm-hmm. Um, she had dirt. She was busted, injecting bleach into lines. Patients crashed. And this is quite the day. Then the, sher- the, the sergeant shows up. And he was like, wait a minute, like, I don't know anything about medicine. What do I know about medicine? You know, again, if it's like other types of crimes, okay, well, I've dealt with this. So he felt out of his league immediately. Um, But throughout this whole process, this guy studied his face off. He read everything he could about kidney disease, dialysis, spoke to like, it's amazing that he was just like, no, I got to know all of this. Um, and they gave him a, a little bit of a rundown there about how dialysis worked. And he knew right away, I can't do this by myself. I need someone else. So he called in someone else uh, that he worked with, a uh, uh, Corporal Michael Shirley. So they went together to Debita. Um, they met a divisional VP by the name of Jerry McNeil and also Amy Clinton. So again, they went through head to toe explaining what happened. They immediately grabbed the sharps containers, separated the individual um, needles and uh, syringes. And, you know, they didn't mix them all together. This came from this one. This came from this um, container. And they found four positive for bleach. They use the test strips that are kind of like for testing hot tubs and pools and spas, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So they tested it and it was like, yeah, these four, you know, 10 cc syringes test positive for bleach. And they were like shocked because you still are thinking, oh, well, hopefully this is, you know, they didn't know. They didn't see anything. So, again, they were. So this is when they were really given a crash course on dialysis and he was all in from the very beginning, even though he's like, I don't know still, but we can't overlook anything just in case. Well, especially um, since there's been a recent rash of illnesses mm-hmm. and deaths, you'd mm-hmm. think, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, so, but at this point, this was an investigation for aggravated assault. They didn't know anybody had been murdered yet. No one else had been seen getting sick by in- immediately being injected or immediately after being injected by signs. And the one good thing is that they were the... Clinton and Nazir were thinking ahead that every patient that had died of a cardiac arrest or had gone into cardiac arrest, they reserved or preserved all their bloodlines. I just don't know why they wouldn't have had them tested at that point. But so all the people in the last month Hmm. who had cardiac arrest, um, whether they survived or not, and the bloodline from Mrs. Rones that day, and then uh, now they have the syringes. The CSU was called in, so the crime scene unit, and they collected every single sharp container from the entire department. Um, 
And these would obviously become critical evidence for At murder. The trial, yeah. Yeah. They stayed until 1030 that night, collecting everything and anything, taking pictures, you know, you know, going through the whole place, grabbing everything they could think of. And an important thing was that they took pictures from where Mrs. Hall and Mrs. Hamilton sat so Perfect. they could see what, what they would see, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where they could see there was um, uh, a little bit of discrepancy between the two uh, stories from them. Mm-hmm. And if they were identical... And no discrepancies, they'd be like, ah, they, sh- they you know, they kind of contrived this themselves. But they didn't. They were, they were as, you know, th- it was perfect. You could see that yeah, they were bang gen- on. Genuine, authentic. Like, yeah. This is what I saw. This is what I saw. Yeah. And neither one of them had a bone to pick with, uh, or an axe to grind with um, uh, signs. They liked her. They thought she was friendly. They would talk about Bible stuff and sometimes sing different things like that. They they was weren't like, oh, we're gonna get that bitch. It was like, <laughs> what the hell, right? Um, they were fooled. Yeah, they so like I said, took pictures. They spoke with all um, available staff and most importantly with Jerry McNeil and Amy Clinton to get all the information they could from them. So one of the most important things they discussed with them was the drawing up of the bleach. Now, it was in the policies, procedures, it was nailed into everybody's head that you do not draw up the bleach with a syringe, specifically for that reason. Mistakes can happen. (laughs) Oops, I grabbed the wrong one. (laughs) Yeah, but still, so this I meant to get the heparin. (laughs) Yeah, but no, you know what? Accidents can happen. So it's like you never, and if you got caught, you were like lambasted for it. Mm -hmm. You just didn't do it. It was grounds for, you know, kind of being suspended and maybe fired if you continued to do it. And this is why they had these little measuring cups. So it it now was sinking into Clinton and Dr. Nazir that I think we know with the cause of what's been happening. Light bulb. Yeah. Sergeant Abbott and Corporal Shirley got a call from a lawyer by the name of Robert Flournoy. And he was the lawyer of Kevin Sines, Kimberly's husband. They said that he wanted to speak. They wanted to to speak to the the investigators. So they drove to the attorney's office. And this is what they talked about. Kevin was filing for divorce. And what... So that's important to know her character. Right. But the main reason is because he found on her internet search... Searches for bleach poisoning. <laughs> I was thinking he was going to be the next victim or something. Yeah, no, he saw like, you know, well, I guess for in, a, to... in a small town like that, you know, even though you try to keep things under wraps, things would get around, right? Yeah, but I mean, like, if Can you I, imagine if, figuring out like your wife is a serial killer, that's crazy. Uh, but they didn't see, he didn't know at that point, though, that this was happening because this is just the next day. So it hadn't gotten around that anybody had been. Uh, so maybe he was thinking he was going to be poisoned. He bleach. was just like, what the heck, right? That's so, scary. Mm-hmm. And did, did, had they obviously discussed a divorce. And then he oh, see, yeah. And then he sees he bleach poisoning. He's, he's like, like, I'm uh, out of here. Yeah, exactly, right? So, um, you know, because if you and I shared a computer and, you know, I wanted just to, like, get rid of the search history because it was bunging up the computer, you know, I'm not really going to look. But, I mean, you look. But, I mean, I'm not going to see how to... Uh, poison my wife, you know, because I'd be like, yo, 
go, I have this shit all over my search history. <laughs> yeah, people didn't know they think. If you didn't know my too. podcast, they'd be like, what? <laughs> what is this wacky? Wacky lady. Well, wiki whack. So after that, Shirley, uh, Corporal Shirley went back to the police station. So they got this information. They're like, okay, now we... So, so let me just think about this for a second. So he, he calls them because he's fearing that he's going to be poisoned. Yeah. Not even knowing that they're like, oh, shit, this is like totally related to what we're yeah. investigating. So, yeah, they, they talk to him and they're like, holy crap. We've got her. Or at least we've got something now. Um, so after speaking with, uh, Kevin signs, they went, um, and interviewed Mrs. Hamilton and Mrs. Hall back at the station. Again, both credible, both excellent witnesses. Mm -hmm. And especially if their story doesn't change at all with the same, same, same. Yeah, exactly. So next they were to interview Kimberly herself. So this is an important thing. Investigators want to speak with potential suspects as soon as possible, especially when the crimes are as a as serious of a nature of this one. And the sooner the suspects are interviewed, the better, because they're more likely to talk, um, even with their rights read to them. Because especially the slippery, slimy sociopaths like this, they want to tell you their side of the story and see if they can spin it into their favor and um, mislead or divert them. So they wanted to get on her right away. And I want to talk a little bit quickly, just because I found this really interesting, um, and I never really thought of this before, about direct versus circumstantial evidence. Now, I always thought that direct evidence was the one you want, and that circumstantial evidence is good, but you want the direct evidence. Because you always say, that's circumstantial in court, and you hear, boom, (laughs) the judge saying, order in the court, um... But the fact is, is that direct evidence is um, eyewitness. And as we know, as people, people can lie, they can misremember, they can be manipulated. Okay. But circumstantial evidence is finding evidence that leads to the circumstance of the crime. So DNA, fingerprints, and other scientific evidence. So circumstantial evidence is more important. It's not just circumstantial. It's not just like, that's <laughs> circumstantial. Um, Objection. So, like, you know, finding bleach in a syringe after the direct evidence. And then you have the circumstantial evidence that supports the direct evidence. So, right. I don't know. I just uh, kind of... Giving us a little I was looking, I, I needed to learn there. a little bit more mm-hmm. of the difference between the two. Because I'm always like... Why are they always like, that's circumstantial? When they should be like, yeah, damn right it's circumstantial. Look how good this is. Anyway. So um, on the 29th, Signs was fired. So she was told, the staff they were told were having an emergency meeting. April 29th, first thing in the morning, everybody has to be there. She's like, nah, I don't feel like it. So it was a perfect timing for Clinton to say, all right, that's it. You're out of here. You're fired. Okay. So now they, they've gotten her out of the place. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so now they're like, okay, let's go talk with her as soon as possible. They showed up at her um, house and asked her to go to the station with them. You want to get someone out of their comfortable place. 
and bring them to something where they're not as comfortable, therefore maybe more willing to to speak. Or, um, or maybe slip up. Yeah. And they could also videotape it there, which was really important. So she agreed to ride with them to the station, but she said, look, um, I've got to arrange for um, a babysitter from my daughter for after school. Uh, can I just go in and grab my purse and make a quick phone call? They're like, yeah, sure, go do it. And they waited in the car. And it took a long time. I'm like, this is taking too long. <laughs> oh, no. So anyway, they uh, got her... She climbed into the, the car, they drove her to the station, and um, as the interview went on, it only lasted 55 minutes, she became slurred and incoherent by the end of the, the meeting. And she was repeating herself, etc. So she had taken some kind of cocktail of opiates or benzos or alcohol while she was in there. And they're like, fuck. Like, we should have gone in and waited inside with her. So then is any of that stuff admissible? Up to a certain degree. Okay. So this is what he was quoted as saying. The longer the interview went, the more rambling. This is Sorry, this is what Abbott said, quote. The longer the interview went, the more rambling she became, and she couldn't maintain a coherent thought. End of quote. So they had to terminate the interview. So she did that on purpose. Well, I mean, if that's not... Uh, guilt a sign of guilt right there i mean boom there it is but you can't go oh well she's guilty because she did that even though you know like who covers who does that right um and she would probably just say i was nervous you know um i took something to help me relax (laughs) yeah so yeah so she took something to hide her guilt and um they would never be able to interview her again after that because she lawyered up that was it. That was their one chance. Um, you know, it's not like, oh, they're bad cops. It's like, okay, yeah, we we, we fucked up right there. But they can't control the, the a psychopath. Like, you can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I mean, she's they're asking her to come down. I mean, what if she said, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Like, they can't follow her into the bathroom, yeah. right? If she, what if they had been there? And the she thing said, is, if go she's going to do it, she's going to do it, right? Right. Um, and she had the forethought to do it, right? Ex- like, she yeah. was like, okay. And you don't know how buzzed she was to begin with because she was, you know, an addict. Um, so they were able to get some info out of her that was incriminating before she started to, you know, go downhill. And she was very talkative. So if she hadn't have done that, which, you know, you could say if, and, buts, what's, that kind of stuff. But anyway, she talked to them about the uh, bleach process. She said she loved her job. And all the witnesses, eyewitnesses, they had said, this woman hates her job. Okay. <laughs> um, she lied about it's her. beneath her. Yeah. She lied about her computer search. She said she didn't do any of that, that it must have been her husband that did it. And um, she also incriminated by herself by saying the ma- machines before the dialysis are started are a quick check back and forth with two staff. You know, this working check, this working check. So she said, oh, yeah, no, we, we both did our... Um, we both checked the dialysis machines that day. However, she's like, well, you know, the dialysis machine must have malfunctioned or it was that person's fault. Even though she admitted, <laughs> like, you can't have it both ways, Kim. Um, yeah, and she probably thought, like, they don't know as much as I know, but she didn't know that they went there and, like, learned the fuck out of everything, right? Yeah. And then she, they said, did you draw the bleach in the syringe? And she said, yeah. And they said, why? She said, there wasn't any measuring cups that day. 
Oh, that's right. But then they asked her how she did it. She said she drew it up from a measuring cup. <laughs> Look. It's like, yeah, oh I flushed God. a line with saline. Well, how'd you do that? Well, I injected saline into the saline bag and then I flushed it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, they, she couldn't remember the last day that she worked. Um, but she gave great detail about her last shift. So she did remember. Like, she wasn't all doped out of her mind by that point. She was just constantly, she was just, you know, this is this, this. And she was giddy and, you know, you know, oh, look at me. I'm getting attention and that kind of stuff. So you can see when she started to deteriorate in the interview. But up until that point, you know, you can see that she's, she thinks she's smart and trying to play these games. And it's just, it's, no, whatever. So, um, anyway... The, the she started to deteriorate uh, after that, and they shut the interview down. Um, so the syringes, the crime scene techs had a lot of work on their hands. They had to go through every single syringe and test it from the whole place. Okay, and like I said, they used uh, the small test strips. So one of the what did, did they test for fingerprints too? No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just know that they tested for, for bleach oh, in the areas. Gloves. I don't know. But even though they can say so-and-so nurse worked in that day, I, I don't know. But okay. yeah. So there is a crime scene tech by the name of Christy Pate, and she was critical in, in gathering this information. She was a, a veteran crime scene tech, um, and her role was to collect maintain collect and maintain the evidence but also the custody of the evidence so it went from there to her to being locked up because if there's a break in that anyway then it's it's no good right mm-hmm. um chain of custody yeah chain of custody and she was on the scene at davida so she was the one that said okay we like, gathered all the evidence she tagged it herself she brought it into the lab and she went through all the syringes herself i thought there was more it was actually her that did it so initially they were just she was just testing 10 cc syringes and she's ah you know what no let, i'm gonna test every single syringe and so there were a couple of 3cc syringes that came back positive for bleach as well. And then she went through them all and uh, they were all tested by May 2nd and she was good to go. And then she was about to leave and she said, no, I don't. Something's my gut's telling me to do it again. She went through every single one again. So she put them back in their individual containers where they came from. She opened up a lid of one to, you know, okay, I'm going to go through this one. On the top, there was a 3cc syringe with a patient sticker on it. So somehow she missed it before going through like lots of them and or they weren't 10cc. And it was a patient sticker and the patient's name was Opal Few. Dun, dun, dun. And it tested positive for bleach. And so that an opal died, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, she was like the ninety-one-year-old lady. Yeah. yeah. So they got. So on she the, didn't need as much bleach to kill her. Oh no. Um. <laughs> so um. She got on the horn to uh, Sergeant Abbott right away, and they were like, "Okay, now we have an murder investigation. This is no longer just aggravated assault." 
Um, on, so I'm just going to give you some dates with how everything flowed after that. April 30th, she was, uh, Sainz was arrested for t- public intoxication. Not that's a big deal, but it just, it's like, you know, 28, she gets sent home for murdering people, but they didn't know it was murder. 29th, she gets fired and gets interviewed. 30th, she gets, um, hammered in public. Hammered in public. Yeah. On May 6th. That's a wise idea yeah, to do. Yeah. You know, on May 6th, her husband got a restraining order on her. And he was also uh, filing for sole custody of their daughter. This is important because of the affidavit that he he said in court. Right. Um, This is his quote. Um, My wife is addicted to drugs and unable to function. She is violent at times and unable to drive a vehicle safely. My wife has been charged with public intoxication. I believe she is a danger to our daughter and to herself and should not be permitted to have possession or custody of our child at this time. End quote. So, you know, he, that's, you know, on record. This from a guy who, uh, didn't he originally have some of his own run-ins mm-hmm. with the law? Yeah, yeah, but you <laughs> know. himself out straight Exactly. Um, so the restraining order was issued. On May 14th, she finally lost her LVN license. And um, on May 30th, she was arrested for two counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon for allegedly injecting Mrs. Rissinger and um, Mrs. Roan with bleach. So she lawyered up with a good lawyer. His name was uh, Scott Tatum, Tatum and Tatum. And um, so she, she had done something kind of right there. And then in the meantime, um, Sergeant Abbott went to the DA's office and the DA at the time was Clyde Harrington. And he, he's amazing. This is where it's like, I want to get into the court drama, but it's good enough to say that this guy was incredible. 28 years in the DA office, 18 as an, uh, as a DA, um, excellent attorney. He had but he had never dealt with a serial killer before and not even close. And, it wasn't just unusual because she was a serial killer. There was no precedence for poisoning people with bleach before. It just, there wasn't. So like, where do we friggin' start with this? They had to find a lab that could test it. Cause there was at that point, no lab in the U S was testing for bleach poisoning. So there had been some studies done um, at the FDA and CDC. So they were able to, get them to do the testing the thing is because they're a federal agency they didn't have they they didn't have to appear in court they could just say oh yeah we tested it but not give testimony okay um what just because they're a federal agency so what yeah, they say goes they just say like yeah they, oh, they so didn't have to show up we to say give it's it, right yeah but they okay. he, he he had a friend um who was a u.s attorney um and he said look can you talk to the fda and, and cdc for me and help me out here so he was a good bridge between getting them mm-hmm. to do the testing and they were able to to basically help find a marker um in the blood for bleach poisoning so then harrington went on to hire um chris Tortorice and lane thompson um, Torres was a uh, young up and coming lawyer, very bright, very well respected. And Lane Thompson was, this is, this is beautiful. I love this. This is where, like I said, the, it's, it's amazing. He was a 22 year veteran defense lawyer with doctors, hospitals, 
in malpractice. He got sick of doing it and became a prosecutor. <laughs> so now, and then he's like, now this is my life's. Well, he knew the other side, right? But that's the thing. Mm. He's like, I can't support these these assholes anymore. I want to prosecute them. So who better could you get than a 22-year vet, basically medical malpractice defense lawyer to become a prosecutor on your team? Mm-hmm. So a, a great team overall that he put together. Um, and then Abbott on his end, beefed up his team of investigators from the police department perspective. So they had a, he had a great investigation team going. This DA had a great invest, uh, investigation team going and it was, it was, uh, it was so great. So it was really going well from that end. And, uh, they called themselves team justice. <laughs> so, um, they like really, it. they really wanted like to, to nail her. Um, so she was indicted on April 1st, 2009, by a grand jury. So that's like almost a whole year later. Yeah. But, and it also took four years for it to go to court. Um, so she was indicted by grand jury on April 1st, 2009 for five murders and five attempted murders or aggravated assaults. Now, this is where it gets even better. She fired the good lawyer and hired this D-bag, Thomas Ryan Deaton. And that alone, single-handedly destroyed any chance that she had of <laughs> i mean it's no secret we all know that she's in prison right now right so right. it's not like i'm giving you away the game of thrones ending or anything like that mm-hmm. um so i still gotta get back into game of thrones i watched the red Wedding episode and then i just was like what walked happened? away <laughs> I mean, that's it yeah um so and then she voluntarily surrendered her license which you know okay she'd never be working as a as an lvn again so she just said okay here it is and she was told I thought it was suspended though. No, but she voluntarily handed because it was she was done. Oh, so okay. they she said, Here, take it back. Uh oh, it was suspended. Yeah. Okay. So um so now she's like she was never gonna work as a a nurse again. So she just said, Yeah. Um so one of the stipulations of that is, hmm, you can't apply for jobs as a nurse, can you? Oh no, don't tell me. You can never work in the medical field again, can you? So what do you think she did? She applied for a job at a dermatology clinic. <laughs> on me. On, That's on, not medical, yeah, is it? <laughs> on March 2009, she lied in her application. Go figure. <laughs> so yeah, she got hired part, at a, part for the course. She got hired at a dermatology clinic. But she was um fired <laughs> on April 1st when she was indicted. <laughs> and the dermatologist is like, well, she lied. Like, how about some background checks here, mister? <laughs> Anyway, yeah. but, but she lazy, lied. Lazy. She, I'm surprised she lied. Um, She's a pathological liar, sociopath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on April 9th, 2009, she was um, let out on $500,000 bail. Who put that money up? Her lawyer, which is unusual. because uh, usu- yeah, I thought you were going to tell me it was her parents. And, well, wait a second. So, because they couldn't come up with it. They were like, by the end of the... the um, the the whole trial by the time she was put away they had been bankrupt because they gave up every penny they had to they believed her to the very end and to this day but anyway i don't want to jump ahead too far okay so this is now capital murder the death penalty now is on the table oh this is texas and this is five murders so the fact that how does someone who has the death penalty on the table get out on bail 
Yeah. It's because her lawyer put it up, which just never happens. So, I don't know. She huh. was she was allowed to be out on bail. Something suspicious there. Yeah. Um. So just just a few in, important notes here. When it's a capital murder, a capital murder specialist attorney has to be on the team. So there was um, a lawyer hired by the name of Stephen Taylor, who was just one of those amazing lawyers, and he'd work on capital uh, cases. And so he had the special license for that. Huh. Okay. So she was like, he was like the one good thing that was working on her case that could keep her from being, you know. Oh, he was a defense lawyer. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. But he was the one thing that was going to stop her from getting the death penalty. And Ryan Deaton was like, yeah, we have to have a new team, but I really don't want you doing anything. It's all my show. So this Ryan Deaton was a petulant, arrogant buffoon, unprofessional, unintelligent, disrespectful, terrible at his job and had to be the center of attention. I, I just have to. He's a, he's a sociopath. An absolute. Birds of a feather. He was like. Together. Yeah. And he would like grandstand and perform like a really bad courtroom drama. Oh, God. Um, so Watch hired, too much Matlock. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in, he didn't use Steven Taylor at all. The only thing that he did was stop her from getting the death penalty by the, the way that they, they, the, her plea. Now, together, Signs and Deaton acted like giddy teenagers. Every day they would sit, elbow each other. She'd lean her head on his shoulder. They would giggle, giggle, tell jokes. That just seems really odd. Oh, yeah. She would, um, it was like, very bizarre behavior because they're both sociopaths. Both sociopaths. Now, yeah, was there something else going on there? I, I don't know. And I don't think so. I think they were just like two teenagers in the cafeteria acting like the cool kids or thinking they were the cool kids. She was constantly turning around and smirking and laughing at the victim's families. Now her family wasn't any better because they would giggle and laugh along with them. They were a hundred percent convinced she was getting off. He was a hundred percent convinced. He convinced them that they had zero to worry about. Nothing. Well, it was all a big joke. Yeah, but he just believed, like, this is not you believe in yourself so much that you can do anything. This guy, you 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 can believe in yourself, but be realistic and know and go after your dreams as opposed to not put the effort in and just assume that you're going to, right? So he constantly pissed off the judge. He was always trying to stall. He was unprepared. He would lead witnesses. He caught lying in court. He was always trying to like postpone things. Um, in times where he should have been cross-examining um, someone, he didn't. He's like, yeah, I've got this. Um, I don't need to, you know. He just where it was like an opening he could walk right into. He was like, did no. He, did, I wonder, did he, do you know if he cross-examined the two ladies? Uh, yes. And I, I was just, that was the next thing I was oh, getting okay, to. Sorry. He was yelling at them. Yeah, he, little old ladies. Yeah, he well, no, the one lady had had passed. Mrs. Hall had passed. Oh, because you know, about that point, four years had gone by, and that's why it was critical to get these eyewitnesses on the stand because they were sick and dying. Wait, right? was she the the one who worked in the nursing home? No, that was Mrs. Hamilton. Oh, okay, so she I was mean, there. Not, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So 
she was on stand and he yelled at her. He tried to discredit her. He disrespected her. He was brutal. And the, the jury hated him. And he would just dig a bigger hole for himself in terms of credibility because they're like, why is he screaming at this little old lady? Like, not little old lady, at this, this elderly woman who is here as sick as she is telling as a witness. So they were like, he's such a scumbag. But but we still, just because he's a scumbag doesn't mean... Like, yeah, you still have to be impartial. When all of a sudden done, this jury was considered, like, amazing by the things that they went through. They just... Um, looked, Circus. Well, they looked at everything. Again, my favorite word today is fine tooth comb, but they did. Because they didn't... They're like, we can't allow his behavior and her behavior in court to, to overlook what the actual evidence is. So... Um, the one thing that I thought was like, this uh, is so good. They really believed that at the end of it, they had the mic drop, the ultimate mic drop. Cause they had, <laughs> they thought was there, the, the wit, the witness on stand. Yeah. There's Mary's dropping the mic apparently. Okay. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> this is more like it. Um, so, and it was uh, a, a doctor by the name of uh, Dr. Krusevsky. And she, her testimony had holes all through it. She was an expert witness. And the younger lawyer, yeah, the younger (laughs) lawyer, he just respectfully and patiently just went at her and he blew holes throughout her whole thing. She discredited herself. He didn't have to do it. So they're like, fuck, that was our... That was that was it. That was that's what we had. That was, there. Our that was everything, right? <laughs> and so on March twenty eighth, after closing arguments, and the and I mean the closing arguments were devastating. Um Harrington well, his probably sucked. <laughs> well, Harrington was so upset because um Deaton was trying to throw out this scapegoat theory. Oh, this huge corporation is just using Kimberly as a scapegoat to hide all their blah, blah, blah. Right. And so that was one of his, like, really bad, you know, theories. And he was just so incredibly disrespectful. And so is uh, Kimberly that when he was giving this closing argument, he was in tears. Because he was so angry and so outraged by whatever happened over that um, those weeks that he kept it inside because he's like, I'm not going to stoop. I'm not going to stoop. And by the time he let it all out, it was so passionate. And he was had like tears running down his face. And they were just like, wow, like this is that important to this lawyer. He believes this that much. And it left such a huge impression. That was the DA. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, Dean was strutting around like, (laughs) like an absolute ass. So, and he was, he would talk to the jury like they were idiots. He'd be like, you know that one plus one equals two, right? Oh, God. And they're like, but you're wrong. It's actually three. And let me explain to you why. Why? Because I'm not sure that any of you have graduated. Like, you know, he was that brutal. And so on March 28th, when they, after closing arguments and they went to retire, like they were completely the party atmosphere was over (laughs) they were just sitting there looking absolutely stunned they knew they were screwed time for a plea deal yep 
Anyway, um, no, because the one thing that Steven Tyler did was have the death penalty taken off the table. Oh, oh the, there was there was that if she pled out the, at this point before like it all came through, if she pled out, then they would take it off the table. If she didn't, it was still going to be left on the table. So on March, so 20- that was the capital defense lawyer who just sat there and totals his thumbs. Yeah, even though he could have, like, who knows what kind of damage he could have done, right? Right. Um, anyway, so March thirty first, she was found guilty for five deaths and three aggravated assaults. They couldn't prove without a shadow of a doubt that she had, um, uh, you know, injured Mrs. Rissinger or Mrs. Casanita. So they, they couldn't prove that a shadow of a doubt. They called it, it was nine, not guilty. But five deaths, three aggravated assaults, um, and she pled. Um, so she, the death penalty was taken off the table. And on April 2nd, she was uh, sentenced to five concurrent terms of life. Uh, sorry, five concurrent terms of life without the possibility of parole and three consecutive 20-year sentences. So she is never going to get out. Um, Wait, consecutive means like one after the yeah, other? Yeah, so like and 60 then years. The concurrence, like on at top of each other. Okay. So I guess it's concurrent because with one of those, you will never get out. So let's just pile on five and then you'd have to like fight each one of those individually. Right. Um, and then three counts. Of course, she appealed it. Yeah. Did she use the same lawyer? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, because he put through a, an appeal right afterwards. Um, her family really thought she was going to get off. Like, they were shocked. They're like, what? And to this day, uh, the town and um, her family believe that she's innocent. And she keeps saying that she is. It was the evil corporation. Yeah. Yeah. So she is now residing at Mountain View Unit in Gatesville, Texas, Women's Prison. Mountain View. Sounds so pretty. <laughs> It's like she's looking at when he has an island. He can yeah. go out from animal research. And it was like Mount. Look at the butt of my cellmate view. <laughs> God, mountain view. Yeah. Okay, so that is the story of Kimberly Sains. I am signs. What do I Sains signs? What do I say at the end of every one of these? I'm so glad to be done with this one. <laughs> Makes you wonder why I do it to begin with, because I think the stories need to be told. All right. Before we end today's episode, I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank but you, I also want to put out a thank you to two new Patreon supporters. Yay. And that is Elise and Tiffany Mole. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank guys. You. Oh, Mary, are you Okay. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. This is absolutely amazing. Um, it's blowing my mind. I, that's the support that we're getting across the board, uh, listenership, uh, Facebook page, um, and, 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 uh, financial support from, uh, you guys on, on Patreon. Um, it, it is really helping out Makes a lot. Makes a big difference. And we've had some serious uh, technical technical support issues mm-hmm. lately, and it's uh, that uh, that money has helped us uh, sort this out. Today is the first time in a while that we were able to speak um, on separate microphones. <laughs> That's right. I'm over here. <laughs> and I'm over here, because you can see that, right? Um so thank you guys for for your support. Thank you to everybody. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, if you want to just head over, you can see the perks that you get. Um, and uh, 
yeah, just just go check it out. Uh, it's Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments on Patreon, and I have a link on the Facebook page and in the show notes. And yeah, that's it. New episode is coming up soon. We're gonna have Doctor Sandra Watson back on, yay! Shortly to talk about more pet stuff, pet stuff, and uh, yeah, just thank you guys and remember. To take care of yourself. Take care of one another. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.